series of meetings is taking place is indicative of significant changes that are happening both within the Christian church and I believe also within the Jewish community. Less than two years ago, well I need to go back a little further, about three years ago I was the speaker in a very large interdenominational, interracial uh, conference in South Africa, the first of its kind ever to be held. And um, the last night, and let me say that I'm going to try to avoid this tonight, otherwise you may be on tender hooks. The last night I was the speaker at the closing gathering with about 6,500 people gathered. And they said to me, now, the allotted time is 45 minutes, but you may take an hour if necessary. So I posted my wife Ruth in the front row, right in front of the pulpit, and I said, when I've had 45 minutes, put your hand up. Now, well, we've never really settled the question of what happened after that. But when I finished, they said, you spoke for an hour and 30 minutes. And I said to Ruth, why didn't you put your hand up? Well, she said, I did, but you didn't see it. So I don't believe that will happen tonight, let me say that. But it so happened that I was speaking on the significance of world events today, and I gone on to what is probably my favorite theme, which is the restoration of Israel. And that's why I think I got carried away. Anyhow, by the grace of God, I had the audience with me, and I had an enthusiastic response from those people. And uh, reports of my message got carried far and wide throughout South Africa. They got carried to the South African parliament. They also reached the Jewish community, which is a very uh, active community in South Africa and a very Zionist community. And I began to find uh, Jewish journalists phoning me and wanting interviews before I left the country. Uh, they said they'd never heard any Christian speaker make the kind of statements that I was making. Uh, we, Ruth and I at that time were there 19 days and we didn't have one day's rest. And the last day we were in Cape Town, which is a beautiful city, and they said you can have a day off before you leave. Well, about three days before that, uh, I was contacted by the Zionist community in Cape Town and asked to give them an address uh, for a luncheon which was arranged. And uh, I said to Ruth, I said, this is such an unusual invitation, I think we'll have to give up our day off for this. So I spoke to them and at the end a, a man came up to me who introduced himself as a rabbi and from his accent I knew he was an Israeli and he was what they call the shaliach, the representative of Israel to the Jewish community in Cape Town. And he said to me, if you ever come back to South Africa, let me know in advance. I want you to speak to all the Jewish communities in the country. Well, I really wasn't quite sure that I heard him right, but I thought, well, if it ever comes about, I'll do that. And sure enough, within just over a year, I was back again. I made a, an indirect contact with him and I ended up speaking to the Jewish communities in every major city in South Africa. And I had some of the most exciting 
and I think significant meetings in my quite lengthy ministry as a preacher. And uh, I think both the Jewish people, the Christians, and above all myself, we're given a glimpse of something new that's developing. And I think these meetings here in this particular area are just another aspect of a great and I believe tremendously significant change which is taking place. My theme is a tremendous one, the Jews, God's people. There are obviously many different ways to approach it. But I feel that the way I can speak most directly and with real feeling is if I present it in a sense in the form of a spiritual pilgrimage that I myself have made. I think I need to say first of all that I am not Jewish. From my appearance, from the way I speak, from the fact that I speak Hebrew you might deduce that I'm Jewish, but I need to say I'm not. Uh, I don't say that with satisfaction, I just say it because that's the way it is. I would say that um, I was probably a pretty typical European Gentile intellectual. I was educated at two of Britain's oldest and most prestigious educational institutions, Eton College and Cambridge University. In my boyhood and through my teens, I attended the Anglican Church eight times a week. Once every weekday and twice on Sundays. I didn't do that because I wanted to. I did it because there were no options. It was part of the school curriculum both at my preparatory school and at Eton. And I am in no sense criticizing the Anglican Church, but I just have to say that by the time I reached 18 and went on to the university, I was glad I'd done all my church going in my early years. I felt I'd got it over, I had no more obligations, and uh, now I was going to go for things that were really interesting. But I always had in me, uh, I'm not going to say where it came from, but always from at least the age of 12, I had a desire which I don't think was shared by all my uh, fellow students, but I always felt there must be something that would give real meaning to life. There must be a, an aim, there must be a purpose, there must be something. Because of my education, uh, I had many different possibilities of employment and so on, but I really wasn't interested in that. I wanted to find out what it was all about, what would be worth living for, and if necessary, dying for. And as I say, I had regretfully concluded that Christianity wasn't it. And so I turned to philosophy, and I have the kind of mind that is at home in the abstract. Uh, I'm not at home in the practical. There are only two things I know about a car. One is when it goes, and the other is when it stops. And if I have trouble with a car, my principle is find somebody who knows what to do but don't try to do it yourself. But in the, in the realm of the abstract, I was very much at home. 
So I was, I was successful. I became a very avid student of Plato, read every word that Plato ever wrote in the original language, and at the age of 24 was elected to a fellowship at King's College, Cambridge, which in a certain sense guaranteed me an academic career for the rest of my life if I wanted it. But I was still a baffled person. I hadn't found whatever it was I was looking for, and sometimes I wondered if it really existed. And then World War II swept us all in its course. I was confronted with call-up into the British forces. For various philosophical reasons, I chose the Royal Army Medical Corps and eventually attained the dizzy heights of a medical orderly class two. But it really wasn't the career I was, I was cut out for. When I faced the prospect of being in the army for an indefinite period during war, I had one question which immediately was my number one issue, which wouldn't have been the same for everybody, but my question was, what will I take with me to read? Because I was, reading was my life. I was used to having one of the best libraries in Europe, just outside my back door. And uh, I knew that in the army, you had to carry everything yourself, and books weigh a lot, and I thought, I can't take a whole library with me. So in my philosophic way, I sat down and I reasoned it out and I said, there's one book in the world which is more widely read and more influential than any other book. And it's a sort of book of philosophy. And what's more, you don't know very much about it. That book, of course, indisputably was and still is the Bible. I'm glad that I was sensible enough to see that fact, the uniqueness of the Bible. No other book can come anywhere near the Bible in regard to its impact on the human race and human history, particularly the background of such a nation as ours. So I felt it was my philosophic duty to study the Bible. When I went into the army, I bought myself a nice new black Bible. In those days, I couldn't conceive of the Bible being any color but black. That was my general view of the whole area. And then I said to myself, how do you study the Bible? And I said, I've really never been confronted with the thought that it was divinely inspired, but somewhere I'd heard some suggestion to that effect. And I said, that's absurd. I'm not going to treat it differently from any other book. I will treat it just the same as every other book I've studied. I'll start at the beginning and read it through to the end. So my first night in the British Army, in a barrack room with 24 other new recruits, I sat down in my bed and opened my nice black Bible at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Started to read. One of the things I hadn't allowed for was that to be seen regularly reading the Bible in public in the army makes you a very conspicuous person. And so uh, that didn't deter me, although it slightly embarrassed me, but I baffled everybody, including myself. 
because there I was regularly reading the Bible and living in a way very different from that of most people who regularly read the Bible. <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in parading my murky path, but I was a very heavy drinker, and um, I was also a confirmed blasphemer, something I say with great regret, but it was unfortunately true. So there I was, reading my Bible, drinking my whiskey, swearing, and wondering what it was all about. The Bible was the first book I'd ever read that I couldn't analyze. I couldn't compartmentalize it. Was it philosophy? Was it history? Was it mythology? Was it poetry? It didn't seem to fit any category. And I found it very dull. But I said, no book is going to beat me. I'm going to read it right through. In my first nine months in the army, I got somewhere from Genesis to the book of Job, which I think really, when I look back, was something of an achievement. And then at that point, I had an experience, which I'm not going to try to describe by any means here tonight. I can only say, if you will forgive the expression, that I came to know the author of the Bible. And that made the Bible immediately a totally different book. I had a revelation of God in an army barrack room in the middle of the night when no one else was awake. You could say that's fanciful. I would have said that myself. But the fact is it happened in 1941 here we are in 1982, for 41 years, that experience has directed the entire course of my life. It changed me radically in 24 hours from one kind of person to another kind of person. And the most dramatic result of that change was that the Bible became for me immediately a completely meaningful book. It didn't matter where I turned, whether it was what we call the Old Testament, what the Jewish people call the Tanakh, or the New Testament. Just about the same time, the British Army sent my unit overseas to North Africa. I spent the next three years in the deserts of North Africa. For nine months on end, I never saw a tarmac road. In all that, I had only one source of comfort, one interest, that was the Bible. And during that time, I read the Bible through several times. Then the army transferred me to Palestine. And I arrived there at a very, very crucial moment in the history of Palestine and of the Jewish people. And for the first time, in a significant way, I was exposed to the country in which the Bible was written. And I think it's important to remember that it was written in a specific place. I think many, many churchgoers have lost sight of that fact. 
The Bible was entirely written in an area of which the western boundary was Italy, the eastern boundary was Persia or Iran. And nearly all of it was written in a much smaller area, which is what we call Palestine, Israel, the Holy Land. And when I was exposed to that country, it gave a totally new perspective to the Bible. I had been reading the prophecies of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so on. But they were, it was as if it had been written in a vacuum. I, I, I appreciated what I called the spiritual and moral truths, but they didn't relate to anything. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, I read prophecies of an age to come, and I viewed them as a kind of vague assurance of some utopia in the future. But when I came to the land of Israel, I saw that it was related to the Bible. I don't want to take time tonight, but there are countless passages in the Bible that have no meaning apart from the geography of that land. I was serving in medical units, and I ended up in what was number 16 British General Hospital in a building, if any of you know Jerusalem, it's the Augusta Victoria building, which is now a Lutheran leper hospital on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple area and the city of Jerusalem. If I had chosen, if I'd been invited to choose the one place on earth I would have liked to be, been, that would have been my number one choice. How grateful I am to the British Army that it eventually put me there. I was also exposed to quite a wide selection of Jewish people. There were a number of Jewish women serving in the ATS, there were Jewish soldiers that served with me in the medical corps, and our whole perspective was somewhat Jewish. And for the first time, I was confronted with the realities of the Holocaust. Probably round about that time, the impact of what was happening in Europe was being felt in its real significance and nowhere more than in Palestine. I think really the people of Britain at that time had not yet accepted the facts. The people of the United States almost refused to accept the facts. But in Palestine, among the Jewish community, there was such absolutely irrefutable evidence of what was taking place and had been taking place in Europe under Hitler that the full impact was felt there for the first time. And uh, at that time, I heard stories, first-hand records of people and the the, the cruelty, the barbarity was incredible and it made a profound impact on me. But as I continued to read my Bible, I discovered that what was happening around me was described there. Again, it was like having a point of reference instead of dealing with vague generalities the very things 
that were happening there in that country and that were happening to the Jewish people were there predicted in detail. One of the prophecies that made a deep impact on me was the third chapter of Jeremiah where the Lord is speaking to the Jewish people and he says, come from the land of the north. And the land of the north, when we read the Bible, we have to interpret always in relationship to, the, to, to Israel. The land of the north is all that segment of the earth that is north of Israel. It includes Germany, Poland, Russia, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Turkey. And it said, come from the land of the north. Then it continues, I will take you, one from a city, and two from a family, and bring you back to the land I gave to your forefathers. And as I listened, and heard Jewish people talking to me and to one another, again and again they would say, I'm the only member of my family that has survived in such and such a city. But there's just one other member, a cousin, a brother, a sister-in-law, that survived in another city. And again and again, those words were, re were fulfilled, one from a city and two from a family. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand that never have I been what you would call a professional theologian. My contact with the Bible and all that's come out of it has always been on the basis of personal experience and the reality of events. See, I, I began to get a completely different perspective on the Bible than I had grown up with. And bear in mind, I mean, I was a, an experienced churchgoer. I think my view of the Bible was that of the average Anglican and not too much different from that of the average Methodist or Baptist. I hadn't any concept of the Jewishness of the Bible. I couldn't see it in any way as being related to a specific area of the earth's surface. Then I began to think about the New Testament. Well, I thought, of course, the Old Testament is Jewish. You know, of course. But when I began to think about the New Testament, I came to the same startling conclusion. The main character of the New Testament is Jesus. If anybody was a Jew, he was. And he deliberately identified himself when he talked to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, he said, you Samaritans don't know what you worship, but we Jews, we know what we worship. And in the same context, he made this remarkable statement, salvation is from the Jews. I think that's dropped out of a lot of people's Bibles. I began to think it over. I have an analytical mind. I said to myself, if there would never been a Jewish people, what would we have? No patriarchs, no prophets, 
No apostle? Bear that in mind. No Bible? No Savior. How much salvation would Christians enjoy without the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, the Bible, and the Savior?